Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. This bonus episode is a recording of the opening comments from a conference held at Santa Cruz Mission State Historic Park on August 27, 2021. The event was called Telling and Teaching the Truth of the California Missions and was co-sponsored by the Amamutsan Tribal Band, the Ohlone Costanoan Esalen Nation, the UC Santa Cruz American Indian Resource Center, and the University of California Critical Mission Studies Program. This opening conversation was titled, Uncovering Difficult Histories at Santa Cruz Mission, and started with comments by Amamutsan Tribal Chair Valentin Lopez, followed by Dr. Martin Rizzo Martinez, State Park Historian for the Santa Cruz District. Martin is also the co-producer of this podcast. A final note before we begin, this episode contains graphic descriptions of slavery, genocide, and sexual violence. Again, my name is Valentin Lopez, and I'm the chairman of the Amamutsan Tribal Band. I'm just going to jump in and, and start here, if that's okay. The history of California did not begin right here at the mission. Well, not here, but with the, with the California missions. When, you, when people study the history of California, they always want to start with the missions. That history is 225, 250 years at most. What about the indigenous people that lived here for 12, 15, 2000, I mean, um, for 12, 15, perhaps 20,000 years or more? What is their history? Why isn't that taught? Why isn't that important? How could the school systems ignore that and believe it's not important? Or it's a story that has to be covered up because it's so shameful and embarrassing for all three periods of colonization. We're going to talk about that mission history quite a bit. And actually, Martin is going to talk about that. I would like to talk about our ancestors who were here at, from the beginning. And although they say we were here for 15, 20,000 years, we've been here since millennium. That's what all of our creation stories tell us. Our ancestors were not hunters and gatherers. That is a very derogatory term for talking about our ancestors. They might as well just call us simple and dumb. Our people were very sophisticated land resource managers. They intentionally stewarded the plants, the animals, the water, the coastal areas, the, 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 the oceans, the sea mammals, etc. That was intentionally managed and stewarded by our ancestors. Our tribe has been working well, I want to def de uh, define something first, and I meant to do this at the very beginning, and it's important. I have descendancy to mission um, Santa Cruz. I have several links 
to Mission Santa Cruz. My great-great-grandmother, my, well, three greats, grandmother was the, is recognized as, as the last speaker of a Waswas language. Our tribal constitution says that we descend from the Awaswas people. And this is our territory. But our tribe continued to do research because we knew who the ancestors were here, but we never found where they came from. A number, just a few years ago, and I became aware of this in 2019, to be honest, we found where those ancestors, where, where those, those links came from. And they came from what is now the town of Almaden, just on the opposite side of the summit at 17. And so we can no longer claim that we are a waswas because we're not. When we found that out, I talked to our donors of our land trust. I talked to our partners. We talked to all the tribes, the neighboring tribes. And we said, if we do not want us working on these lands and continuing the work that we have started here, because we've been working here since about 2007, 2008, to learn about how our ancestors lived on these lands. Um, that we will leave because we will only do it with the tribals, um, the neighboring tribes agreeing that. At the same time, we gave them all an invitation to come and work with us. So that's a standing invitation to all people, uh, all alone the people and tribes from others. You're welcome to join us. So I wanted to say that so that it's not thought that that I am a Waswas or that I'm from this territory. I'm just from the other side of 17. Here's what some of that research found. We knew that we, our ancestors always burned, you know, on a regular intervals and stuff like that. So we did research to see what was that frequency of burning our ancestors did. And that frequency was approximately seven to 10 years. Every seven to 10 years they would do it. What they would do is they would divide the landscape into you know, seven, eight, nine, perhaps 10 different segments and they would burn one segment each year. And that right there allowed them to manage the resources so that they would always have plenty of grass seed because those grass seeds depend on fire and heat to germinate. Then um, the second year, you start getting those higher shoots, and those higher shoots are the preferred foods for the deer and the antelope and the other grazing animals. The third year, you start getting bushier plants, and those right there are very important. And it goes on and on, you know, so you get the balance in the, in the resources year-round. The other thing that did is that maintained the coastal prairie. When you come in, you see that the trees are right at the right at the edge of the coast here. That's not the way it was before. This area was wide open as a coastal prairie. And that coastal prairie was recognized as one of the most biodiverse landscapes in California, excuse me, in, uh, in north of Mexico City. This area here was one of the most biodiverse landscapes north of Mexico City. That's incredible when you think of it. 
And then when they mission period, and then the Mexican period, and then the American period, stopped indigenous burning. That's when the shrubs and the trees and everything else moved in. Moved in. And today, that coastal prairie is practically all gone. What our tribe learned most, and we did not need the research to show us this, we knew this from the beginning, is the most important part of all restoration must be restoring sacredness to the lands. Creator, when Creator made these lands, how could they not be sacred? These lands are sacred and our first responsibility, not only native people, but all people, is to restore that sacredness to these lands and to maintain it. And we do that with prayer, with ceremony, with living our life in ways that please Creator, in ways that please the ancestors. That's what we do. The ancestors, I mean, excuse me, those that were brought to this mission, Mission Santa Cruz was one of the most brutal, was the, was the most brutal of all missions right here. Martin's going to tell some of that. The life expectancy here was less than two years. One thing is here, you know how they, they treated the, the Indians as farm animals. And uh, you know on those farm animals, they have a controlled breeding program. They know, who, you know, they want these bulls to, 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 to mate with those cows. They, you know, they want these, this horse to breed with that horse. They had a controlled breeding program for the Indians. How can that happen? How can people treat human beings like that? I've always said that what happened at the missions didn't start with the missions here or the colonization of indigenous people in the 1500s. It started with the papal bulls, the issuance of the papal bulls by the pope of the Catholic Church. In 1453, the Pope issued a papal bull that said all indigenous people are pagans, heathens, and savages. Then indigenous people have no soul. And if you have no soul, that means you're not a human being. And if you're not a human being, they can kill you. They can rape you. They can enslave you. They can torture you. They can do whatever they want to you. And it's not a sin because you're not a human being. That's how that whole conquest started with that papal bull. And then in 1493, the doctrine of discovery comes out and it says that European nations, the Christian European nations, or to go out and discover these unfounded lands, undiscovered lands. Those were indigenous lands. And to claim them for your, na for, your, for, your, for your country. And you were to turn those, 
the indigenous people there, you were to turn them into, uh, you know, to, to get them to assimilate and become citizens of your country. And they were to become, and, and to assimilate to them to, the, to, the, to, to be Christians. And if you did not accept that assimilation, they were to be killed. It's estimated that over 100,000 Indians were killed during that mission period alone. 100,000. Those are just shameful stories. Shameful stories. And that history continues to this day. When I looked at George Floyd, what comes to mind is, did that cop believe that George Floyd was a human being? That what he was doing was a sin? Or did he see him as not being a human being that didn't matter? We say that the destruction and domination of, of indigenous people and, and tribes and, and, and Native Americans, that period never ended. It continues to today. It continues to today when you look at the laws and the books that say that our sacred sites and our cultural sites can be built on. They could put a Safeway market on a burial ground and require you to remove the remains of 188 of our ancestors and go rebury them someplace else. How is that honoring and respecting Native people when the laws of the, on the lands say that under NAGPRA that these museums can hold on to our ancestors and not return it to the Natives. And in the early days, they'd put them out for display so people could see the remains. For the Amamutsin, that's the greatest violation of our spiritual belief when you disturb the human being, the, the remains, you're calling that spirit back from the other side. And that spirit can never be put to rest again until there's a full and complete reburial. So they want to, when they want to do that DNA testing, when they want to do that carbon testing, that is not a full and complete reburial. And so those, the spirit of those ancestors can never be at peace. I want to say... Two final things. If we're going to move forward together in ways that have trust, in the ways that have meaning and hope and honesty, we have to deal with the actions of the past. We have to heal from that historic trauma. And the perpetrators, they suffer from a soul wound every time they raped, killed, tortured an Indian. That was a tremendous soul wound on them. We must heal. Indigenous people need to heal. But perpetrators need to heal so much more than the indigenous people, and they don't recognize that. We can never move forward in a good way without that healing. 
We must find ways to do it. And what I want to say finally is we don't blame you for that history. You weren't the ones that were paying that bounty money doing the enslaving or the killing. That's not, that's not what you did yourself personally. But you must recognize that you, had, uh, um, that you have benefited greatly from that destruction of the native people on these lands. You benefit greatly. Every day when you wake up and you put your feet on the ground, you're putting your feet on ground that was stolen from the Indians. What we ask today is that you look for ways to heal the perpetrators. You look for ways to work with the indigenous people to heal. You work with, work with, the, work with indigenous people and all indigenous people and Native Americans to help restore the culture, to help restore the, the spirituality, the indigenous knowledge, the, the ways of them finding balance in their life. We must do, all do that and we must do that together. Oh. So it's a great honor to be here, uh, to be here today, to be here with everyone, uh, to share the stage here with Val. Uh, my name is Martin Rizzo Martinez. Uh, I am the State Park Historian for the Santa Cruz District here. Um, I've been working with State Parks for just over a year, so I'm new here, uh, just starting. But it's, it's a great time to be here because of things like this. Um, I'm going to give a little history uh, of the area and try to give a little context. Um, but first, I, I want to start by saying that five years ago, before I worked with Parks, when I was just finishing my dissertation, uh, Val and I were both invited um, by my colleague now, Jen, uh, Julie, uh, my current boss, Mark Hilkema, uh, to come here and to speak uh, to an audience kind of like here uh, we're doing today. And that on that day, I made a point to say, to recognize that this was a historic moment uh, in large part because uh, we had this opportunity to have somebody who had ancestors who were part of this indigenous community here at Santa Cruz, Mission Santa Cruz, who was speaking, of course. I was talking about Val. And I want to extend that to say that, to just point out how today this is uh, even more of a historic moment, if you can say that that way. Um, but we're truly blessed because in addition, we have so many folks coming here today visiting. We have native leaders from up and down the states uh, who are here uh, from throughout the Bay Area. And, um, you know, we have many different people who are descended from survivors of the California missions here to speak today, which is truly a remarkable and historic moment. Now, when I say survivors of the missions, I, I say that very intentionally. Uh, and I want to shift to talk about what I, what I mean by that. But as you all know, because you're here, hopefully, uh, the California missions have been romanticized and idealized. Um, so many lies have been told over the last centuries uh, about this history, and the hard truths have not really been grappled with. Um, and in order to really understand and contextualize uh, the missions today and to understand this history, uh, we really have to understand what life was like for Native people in the missions. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of uh, kind of give you a little bit of context here, specifically at Mission Santa Cruz. 
me give you some some numbers uh, to work with too. So at Mission Santa Cruz, there was just under 2,500 native people who were baptized uh, from the moment of founding in 1791 until the closing of the missions in the 1830s. Um, by the time of that closing, there was just over 200 native people who were still alive. I'll say those numbers again, but there was 2,500 people who were baptized here and just over 200. Uh, what that means is that over 90%, just over 90% of the people, native people who received baptism at Mission Santa Cruz did not survive that period. Now, even if you look at this and say, well, you know, some of the 70-year-old elders or people might have died naturally, those numbers are, are stunning, um, really. I'm going to add to that, and when I looked at the uh, baptismal records here at Santa Cruz, there was... Uh, a little less than 500 Native children who were born uh, and baptized at Mission Santa Cruz. Of those just under 500 children who were born, over 50% of them, just over 50%, did not survive to the age of one. So that means died at birth or right afterwards. So that's 50%. Another 25% did not reach the age of five. What that means is 70, over 75% of the children who were born at Mission Santa Cruz did not survive past the age of five, past infancy. Uh, these are devastating numbers, and I think you cannot look at that situation and not recognize that the missions were devastating and terribly uh, difficult places for Native people. As... Um, Jonathan Cordero is a roommate to a Shaloni leader locally, not here today. Uh, he pointed out in a recent article that it's, and I think it's a great point, he points out that there is, it's impossible to find ways that the Franciscans improved or helped the life of Native people. And I think when you look at those numbers, that shows you itself, and, you know, we won't get into it here, but if you did comparisons of what life was like before the missions, it was nothing like that. It was actually the inverse of that, right? 80% of people are surviving into adulthood across the world and societies, including here in California. So it is, it is impossible to find what positive changes were brought about because there weren't any. Um, now, in academia, I'm a historian, and in academia there's an argument or there's debates about how to properly understand the missions in comparison. And some people make comparisons with uh, the missions to um, either southern slave plantations or other people try to make comparisons to um, you know, what was happening in concentration camps in Germany. Now, a lot of historians will point out that the intentions of the Spanish settlers here were not to exterminate people, were not to eradicate people, but were instead to convert them and was to turn them into labor force, right, uh, and these conversions. And as a historian, I, I understand these arguments. I understand where people are coming from in terms of the intentions, but I think that it has to be noted that there is a difference between the intentions, whatever they may be, and the actualities of the realities of life, right? And when you're looking at a situation where people are dying over 90% here, uh, it kind of doesn't matter what the intentions might have been when the steps aren't being taken to make sure people survive, right? Um, and when I look at the numbers, you know, let's look at Dachau, which is one of the worst, right? And when you look at the numbers there, it was about 85% of the people who were brought into Dachau 
were exterminated, right? And like I said before, over 90% of the people who came here. So these, these debates about the intentions, I think, are, are purely in the realm of academic and, you know, in people's heads. But for the lived realities of people who have survived this, uh, it doesn't really matter, right, what those intentions are. Um, so this brings up a, a question here, and as we're, we're sitting, you know, tomorrow we're going to be removing one of these, um, you know, this bell marker that stands as a testament to this mythology and this imaginary of uh, kind of romanticized Spanish history in California. And as we do this, I think it's a, a real question here of what, so what place does, you know, we stand here in front of uh, this last remaining adobe, the oldest adobe structure, um, here in Santa Cruz, uh, and I want to kind of shift to talk about this building and what what can we learn from this, and how can we better understand this history uh, through this, right? Um, so let's talk about this adobe a little bit here. So, in some ways, as Julie mentioned before, this this building is somewhat unique amongst, if you go to the other 20 missions, usually it's the big churches that stand there. Uh, 18 of those are run by the church. Uh, a couple of those are run by state parks, um, like this one here. When, when this particular area was gifted to the state parks back in the 1980s, we we're very fortunate in Santa Cruz to have uh, a, a professor up at UCSC, a historian named Ed Castillo, uh, who is from the Luiseno Cuya uh, people. He was the only indigenous instructor, to best of my understanding, in the 1980s. Uh, but fortunately, Dr. Castillo worked here with the people who were turning this into a park, and he, uh, from everything I've heard, he really made a point to say, hey, this place has to focus on the Native story. Uh, it has to represent this. And I, um, and I know that that has been the intention from this, thanks in large part to uh, the work of Castillo, thanks to others like Julie and uh, Mr. Helkma, uh, who has worked for a long time with Val and with Amon Mutsen uh, to do that. Uh, that has been the emphasis here. But that being said, I still think there's a lot of room for improvement, and it has to, right? We're at a time where, where people need to know more about this truth and need to understand that. Uh, and I want to shift a little to talk about some of the families and individuals here, because I think there is an opportunity by understanding the history of the families and the individuals who lived in these build in this building right behind us to understand some of that history of what happened here in Mission Santa Cruz. So I'm gonna I'm gonna shift and tell you a little bit of the stories uh, of a couple of the people here. So I'm gonna start by talking about an indigenous woman who lived here named Petra Nicanor. Now she lived with her husband Victoriano Chuhez, who was a Yokuts man from the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, now Petra Nicanor she herself, her father was uh, from the Chalactaka village site, which is by the Lexington Reservoir over by the 17. Uh, and her mother was from the, the Aptos tribe, which is just down here. Now her father was a man who was named Lino. And Lino was somebody, uh, unfortunately, she didn't get to know him. He died when she was very small. But Lino was a, a, a person of a very much important standing within the community. So much so that it's the only record that I've seen where her burial record actually lists, and it's, uh, she died in the 1850s, but it actually lists her dad's name, which is very unusual at the time, but it shows that Lino was somebody very important. But to understand Lino, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, an infamous padre who was here, Padre Quintana. Some people may have heard of him. But Quintana was a very sadistic uh, person. He was uh, a priest here. He had had a whip fitted with iron 
uh, in the tips of it so that it would cut deeper when he would punish people. Um, and he was known for, for beating people regularly uh, here at the mission. Uh, Lino had worked with him. Lino was the oldest. I mentioned uh, the terrible mortality rates of children. At the time, this is 1812, Lino was the oldest surviving child there. Uh, and as such, he was the personal page to Quintana. So he worked very closely with Quintana, and he saw this firsthand. And in fact, all the records, including the Spanish uh, testimonials that came out after, uh, after the trials, pointed out that Lino had been castigated Mucho, Gustavo Mucho, right? He was beaten by uh, Quintana. He's one of the people beaten. After a particular moment where Quintana had beaten two young men nearly to death, Lino and a group of other uh, men and women gathered together. Um, and Lino, in the oral histories, Lino is cited as one of the leaders of this who pulled people together and said, what are we going to do about this padre? Uh, he said many things. He said, you know, he does not practice what he preach, uh, preaches. He, he treats us like animals. We cannot deal with this. We need to do something. And so they worked together, uh, and they formulated a plan heavily informed by this uh, woman, Yakenansa, who had come in from, uh, from the Henry Coe area, who came up with this strategy. Uh, a lot more details than I'll go into, but basically they were able to assassinate him successfully uh, and take care of him. And for this, Nine men were, including Lino, including Lino's father and his uncle, um, because it was his family was in the center of this, uh, were all sent to the Presidios, uh, and Lino died there in Santa Barbara uh, Presidio. They were given like 500 lashes uh, and sentenced to years of hard labor for what they did. Um, and like I said, Petra probably didn't know her father or just knew him from infancy, uh, but clearly, his, her father remained an important figure within the community here many years. So she was one of the people who lived here. I'll tell you briefly about a couple others. In another room lived a couple. Um, they were Yokuts from the San Joaquin Valley, Maria Buena and Isidro Sauset. Um, and Maria Buena had a grandson, this is from a previous marriage, uh, who was a young man named Jose Lenz, uh, nicknamed Catch. Uh, in the early 1880s, so sometime afterwards, he was arrested for arson with his friend, uh, another uh, descendant of the mission here, Santa Cruz, Francisco Tajo Castro, um, who was a friend of his. They were, they were arrested for being suspected of burning a number of buildings, and this is in 1884. Um, and to give a little context of that, what, they were, what was happening at that time was the surviving indigenous community here were living uh, down the hill behind the mission, an area that today is still known as a Potrero, where Costco is. Uh, and this was through the 1860s, 70s, 80s, was known as the reservation locally. And that's where the native community lived. Um, and at the time that these young men were arrested for this was a time where those lands were being bought up and taken over by different uh, American farmers and whatnot. And so... I think it's very possible. We don't, we'll never know. The two men were sent, in, uh, sent to San Quentin. They both died within a year, year and a half after their sentencing. They were 18-year-old boys. Um, nobody had died in these burnings, right? But I think that we can look at this and very well understand that probably what was happening here was that they were acting out against this encroachment. They were seeing the, the very small lands, a very slight bit of land that their ancestors and their families had lived in uh, were being taken over and they were being pushed out. Um, so I think that we can, again, understand that. And I, I think it's another story that shows, uh, again, kind of my point with this is that we can look at these stories and understand ways that Native people resisted and fought back and challenged um, what they were dealing with, colonialism, right? Multiple levels of it. Uh, I'll tell you one last little story of one other room here. But in another room lived a couple 
Uh, these are different times, the 1840s and 50s. Well, there's a couple that lived here who are part of the California community, right? So this is a part of the Spanish uh, colonial community. Uh, the husband's name was uh, Jaime Manu, and his wife's name was uh, Clementina Montero. Now, I said they're part of the California community, but when you look deeper at their, their stories, and particularly that of Clementina, uh, it's a very fascinating story. So Clementina Montero was a daughter of a woman named Toy Perina. Now, some people may have heard of Toy Perina, others may not, but Toy Perina, of course, was a famous Tongva woman from the LA area who had led a rebellion against Mission San Gabriel down in Southern California. Uh, this is in the 1780s. Um, she had played a key role in this, along with some others, and led this rebellion, uh, but she was captured, and for her uh, punishment by the, the Spanish officials, she was exiled, and she was sent up to Monterey. Uh, she eventually married a Spanish soldier up there, uh, and she had three children with him. Um, and she died when they were small kids, but all three of the kids ended up living in the Santa Cruz area at the Via de Brantzaforte. Um, and Clementina, in particular, ended up living in this very adobe uh, we see behind us. But the punishment that her mother experienced continued, right? And the same kind of uh, dynamic and same type of treatment continued from local padres. In fact, uh, Padre Olbes, who was here later, undoubtedly knew of her heritage, knew of her mother, even though it's not cited in this, but clearly would have. Um, and he worked to try to take away her children. Apparently, uh, Clementina had had kids from different marriages, which is frankly pretty normal. Uh, but at the time, and under Catholic rules, he, he, he targeted her. He tried to get her children taken away from her. He even said in some of the documents that she had mother's milk of venom. That's how he talked about her. So I think what you see in this is this continued stigmatization, uh, especially that is given to indigenous women uh, and people who have fought back and challenged these things, right? There's a way that this type of treatment kind of persisted and continued. So these are, are just a few of the stories, of many stories of resistance that happens here at Santa Cruz, every mission up and down the state, uh, every community has their own stories of ways that their people have fought back and challenged uh, these things. And I think that's been left out of these stories with these mythologies that have been handed down, uh, and these romanticized stories of, you know, whatever that we've all been fed. Uh, you know, the stories of the way that people actually fought and actively tried to resist this, uh, I think are, it's important that we, we look at these and we look and try to understand that the way that Native people dealt with building community and dealt with dignity and ingenuity to, to fight and to resist and to challenge these things. Um, so I want to just wrap up with this and say that a couple things, but, you know, I, I guess I'd like to make the argument that, that the value of a place like this is, is much like the, you know, I think there are comparisons to be made of, you know, plantations in the south, of concentration camps, and the ways that we must deal with those histories. And I think that the, have it here is an opportunity for us to deal with this by exposing this, these stories and these truths so that people can really understand what happened here and understand the true histories of what happened here. Uh, and I think it's really important. I want to say that... You know, as you sit here today, we're going to have a lot of really amazing speakers up here. Um, a lot of them are themselves descended from survivors, um, people who persisted and made it through the mission times. Uh, and I want you to keep that in mind and to remember that what their ancestors dealt with to, to make it through these, these really horrific conditions in many ways. Um, and I guess the last thing I want to say is, as a, as a non-California native uh, scholar and public historian, uh, amongst others, 
I think that we can we can try to help the best we can to to push against these these narratives, these lies, these uh, these mythologies that have been fed us, uh, and to try to bring light to the real histories and to you know talk about what's really happened here. Um, but at the same time, it's obviously no substitute for actually listening to Native Californians talking about their stories and what they have to offer. And so I, I want to encourage you to, I think I'm glad that everyone's here. I think that we really have this beautiful opportunity to listen to a lot of really incredible people. Um, and I hope that many more opportunities continue uh, so that their voices get out and that we can listen and learn from them. So thank you all very much for your time. Um, yeah. A few minutes for questions if you have any. The question was, what was the role of acute epidemic disease at this particular mission? Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think it, it, like it, all of the missions, the conditions were, were very terrible in, in many ways. I think it's worth noting, too, that, you know, some of the conditions of housing where people were, you know, kept, women were confined in what they're known as the monarias, which are these kind of cloistered, badly ventilated, uh, poorly, uh, you know, badly taking care of areas. But yeah, disease played a huge role. Um, there was incidents of syphilis, dysentery. There were, um, yeah, multiple, uh, you know, malaria eventually came through uh, 1830s. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was definitely all sorts of disease that was there. Um, but I, I want to point out too that the conditions weren't that of, of breeding health, right? I mean, they, partly it was, it was the way that people were uh, put in and penned in together uh, in this, but yeah, absolutely, disease played a huge role. This, when we talk about the deaths at the missions, that always comes up. People always want to say, well, actually, I, I talked to the priest at San Juan Batista. I was talk, trying to tell, talk to him about the history at San Juan Batista. And he says, well, it wasn't our fault. The Indians died of disease. That wasn't our fault. You know, they're putting 200 women in a room with poor ventilation, one pot in the corner for them to use. They're locking the door, you know, but that wasn't their fault. You know, one person got sick, it just went right through like a wildfire. Um, those conditions contributed greatly to the death rates. And those conditions were forced on them by those missions. And now in contemporary times, what really gets me is you say, you hear um, um, the Catholic Church, while the people associated with the mission say, well, it was during the American period they died. It wasn't the missions. And you hear the, and I've heard the, the, um, you know, the, the folks from, from the state say, well, pe people, you know, the citizens of the state say, well, they died because of the, you know, the missions. They're pointing the finger at each other, in other words, and stuff like that. No one wants to accept that blame, or that, you know, or that, or, or acknowledge that wrong, and such. So that that's an important question. You know, the, the, the disease was was a huge part of that death. You know, and then I've heard, some, you know, I, I heard uh, one time a person was talking about dying with gonorrhea and how painful and that suffering is. And how that just went through the missions because at nighttime they would lock those mojarias. But the soldiers had the keys and they would go in there and night after night rape the women time after time after time. And they would do the same thing to the children time after time. And so death by syphilis, death by gonorrhea 
It was a horrendous way to go, but it, it affected the community, uh, many, many people in that community, many. That, you know, so I'll, I'll stop there. I'll add a little something to that. It's a great point, Val. I think, so in the records of here at Mission Santa Cruz, um, they call the Gallico, right? The, the, the French disease, syphilis, right? But syphilis was, was rampant, right? There's a lot of people who died of syphilis. When I started looking at the people who were marked as dying of syphilis, the women, and you look at the children, of course, there's there are stillborn children that are happening in this too. And we know from the oral histories Lorenzo Asisara, who wrote the, gave these interviews in the 1880s, I mean, he talked about one particular priest, uh, Padre Gili Taboada, who had, who had syphilis and passed it to the women, as he described. And he talked about how he would embrace the women until they would get lesions, too. And this guy was so riddled with syphilis that he couldn't stand to give his sermons, right? Uh, and when I look at that era, when he's here from 1818 to 1825, that is happening. I mean, there are women who continue to die from syphilis uh, throughout that time. So yeah, I mean, that is absolutely another part of that that disease story. And that's very specifically to the sexual abuse that was happening uh, here at Mission Santa Cruz, as is the stories I know at Monterey, similar things, right? Some of the same people, Padre Real, and you up, up here too afterwards, right? So a lot of these Padres are going from place to place now. And staying with that theme of the the sexual abuse, what I find really... Um, telling is that um, Father Quintana, when they killed him, they crushed his testicles. And that was there was a very strong signal of what kind of person he was. And one, one more quick question. Yeah, the question is, how much land did the, the church control? You know, in the the church controlled huge swaths of lands up until the 1830s, right? And so um, part of what happened after Mexican independence, 1821, right, was that there was a, a decree to was the, the lands that the, the church held were supposed to be turned over to the native people of the lands. That was the legal kind of coming out of Mexico, what was supposed to happen. Now, in actuality, of course, that did not happen. And what happened was uh, all across California, especially uh, from most of my research right here, is that the kind of elites, the, the powerful families uh, of the kind of Spanish colonial families were here, grabbed up this land. There was a huge land grab all through the 1830s. Santa Cruz turned into all these ranchos, Soquel, you know, all these different rancho lands. So by the time um, they didn't release people, they were supposed to emancipate them from the missions as early as the 1820s. And that didn't happen until 1839. They had to send somebody out to the missions to Hartnell to report. And actually Hartnell went around and said, yeah, they haven't released anyone from the lands. They're still in bondage at the missions. And they finally released them. And at that point, 99% of those lands had been uh, turned into these rancho properties. And so there was very little. In Santa Cruz, the, there was a reservation that was made behind the mission. On the west side, there was a small community of kind of local people that ended up over there. Uh, and a couple in the houses right in this little plaza here. But uh, a very small percentage of what was church lands, uh, which were massive. Uh, it's probably worth noting that the church still holds massive lands in California. Uh, certainly a lot more than uh, than most of the, the native communities from the missions who hold little to none of the land. So, Around the world, the Catholic Church is, um, is the largest landowner outside governments. They own more land than any other non-government organization. 
and um, and the and th that land right there was all stolen from indigenous peoples, and um, that's another important topic to talk about someday, and hopefully we can do that soon. Thank you. All right. Thank you all. Yeah.